from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how consumers around the world view business in this moment, the growing world of Greentown Labs, companies dish on their sustainability plans, and how to maintain your personal sustainability. We're practicing self-care this week on 350. It's July 10th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. We're back from our July 4th break. Joining me, as usual, from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz's resident firecracker editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. <laughs> Hello, Joel. How are you today? I could. I thought I'd usher in the second half of 2020 with a bang. So, uh, I, do you have a good break? I did have a good break. It wasn't particularly uh, eventful. Uh, Wait, I, I, rumor has it you went and your husband off on a motor <gasps> motorcycle ride into oh. the various states around the East Coast. That sounds pretty cool. Okay, so I did get on the bike and go with my husband. He he t tends to want to take very long rides, so my posterior cannot handle that. And I, uh, but I did get on the bike this past weekend, and we had a wonderful ride through the rural towns of New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. Well, that sounds better than my stay-at-home stay weekend, trying to keep the dogs from quivering mm -hmm. under the bed for the massive oh, right. fireworks going on all the time. But um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're... And now, yeah. I am watching bunnies play on my front lawn. <laughs> Bet the dogs would be happy. Uh, the dogs would be very happy and maybe distract them from their, their neurosis. But um, you know things. what? We all need to be distracted from our neurosis, so let's jump into that right now with the Week in Review. Well, I mentioned personal sustainability, and uh, we want to take this opportunity to welcome one of our newest columnists, Chris Gaither. Chris is a leadership coach, uh, but before that, he's also been a journalist, and his most recently was the uh, chief of staff to Lisa Jackson, the head of Apple's uh, environmental and uh, corporate responsibility and social initiatives. He was a director on that program. And... Um, He's been writing about, uh, and he's going to be writing a, a column on personal sustainability. This is a topic that we all know. It's sort of the elephant in the room. We don't talk about it. How do those of us in sustainability who be, who seem to you know, work so hard, pulled in so many directions, a lot of stress, I'm not unlike others in other jobs, but in this field, we tend to go all out, passionate people that we are. How do we do that and keep our personal sustainability? How do we not get stressed out? And what I love about this is that Chris speaks from experience. And he his first column tells a story about how uh, after pulling off a heroic event for Apple's 2017 Earth Day celebration, he realized he was burned out and ultimately sick 
and um, took a while. He left uh, to you know get restored and 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 uh, undepleted, I guess, repleted, uh, just unburned out. And and now he's in the coaching business, trying to help others do that. So he's going to be writing about this. And boy, I have to say the response to this first column has been great. Well, I know I enjoyed it, and I am totally guilty of many of the things that he mentions in here, and and you are too. I know I can say that. Yep. Um, And I actually have been reading Ariana Huffington uh, sort of on the side, and and I I know because she's she's big into this whole self-care movement. Um, And it's really important right now. I think it's, it's been something that many companies have have been advocating to their employees, just generally speaking. So it's great timing, and I'm really happy that we've uh, we've managed to get him to to put his journalism hat back on and do do some writing for us. It's welcome, Chris. Yeah, and at the same time, almost the same breath, do want to give a, a fond farewell to our good friend Bob Langert, who. Uh, Joined us five years ago after an amazing, enviable three-decade career at McDonald's. Been writing a column called The Inside Story, or The Inside View, I guess. And um, uh, just decided it was time to hang up. His uh, typewriter, and uh, he's he's been out of sustainability day-to-day, and just realized he didn't have as much to say as he wanted to, and reluctantly this, you know, said, I've got other things to do. I'm going to step back from this. But it sent us, left us with a bit of a love note, uh, which we ran this week on the site. And um, we'll link to that as well. So, Bob, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for not just what you did for us, but your uh, storied, uh, enviable career and the legacy you left behind. Um, great to have you as part of that. Um, and and uh, I think showing what happens, you know, in, in, speaking of burnout, uh, you know, knowing when to when to leave, <laughs> knowing when to say when. Um, but um, let's move, change subject to uh, energy equity. We ran this piece by Daphne Rose Sanchez from Kinetic Communities Consulting about well energy equity and and her experience in New York. Um, what what struck you about this, Heather? Well, so first of all, I need to mention that Daphne is part of our latest class of thirty under thirty. Um, she and that and she when we reached out to all of the the new people she, we said hey write essays and so she obliged with a, a wonderful piece about how her company supports uh, the design of different energy efficiency programs in uh, low-income and in diverse communities in the New York area she's a herself a New York City resident um, and she has a, she's a third generation resident of public housing so she has an inside view if you will go to go back to that theme of what it takes to get people um, interested in these things and and so this column from Daphne is a wonderful set of tips um, that that give companies ideas of how to approach these communities with with sort of authenticity, right? Not sort of an authenticity, but authenticity. How should an energy professional think about uh, connecting with these with these communities? Um, one of the things that I, I really appreciated was sort of her her note of, of ways to find incentives. Um, she she makes a comment that uh, you can get more attention by connecting an incentive, which is an internet access um, to to these programs, and so just the the way that you need to think more creatively. Um, and, 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 you know, I just felt like her column was, well, first of all, just very well informed. And secondly, just tremendously 
uh, useful tips. Um, and she's, she also provides a bunch of resources for people to read about how racism manifests in clean energy, um, how to help black employees. It's just a, a great uh, piece for this time. Yeah, we love it when our 30 under 30s write for us and been trying to encourage them to do so. It's hard because they're all busy people and don't want them to burn out either. Uh, but uh, this is a great example of uh, showing, uh, you know, from the perspective of a, you know, 20 something, or maybe some of these are just turning 30, um, their worldview, some of the work they're working on, their challenges, their challenges, not for just for themselves, but the challenges they put out to the business community. Uh, these, this is a great series, and we're really proud to, to continue to uh, watch, support, uh, encourage uh, these, these uh, the I guess now five years worth of 30 under 30, so 150 young people, emerging professionals, young professionals, uh, help them as they move through their career. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is my good friend, Alan White, who has uh, uh, been in this as long as anyone. He's uh, responsible for found, the founding of Ceres and, and uh, Global Reporting Initiative and a number of other uh, things that look at at uh, corporate structure and the role and purpose of corporations. And he wrote a piece called It's Time for Corporation 2030, The Road to Corporate Purpose that we ran this week. Um, the road to, to Corporation 2030 is, is, uh, takes us to Corporation 2020, which is an initiative that he founded uh, about 15 or so years ago to look uh, with a number of other key players uh, in the in the field of corporate responsibility and corporate purpose, uh, looking at uh, what is the core purpose of the corporation, how should it be designed to blend sustainability in, in its design, ownership, governance, strategy, and practices. Um, and it's been working on a lot of these issues for the past 15 years. And But he's saying now that we are at, at 2020, uh, we should be looking at uh, what, what happens after this. And, you know, th these are conversations that we've been having for decades, literally, uh, almost three decades now. Um, back, you know, John Elkington coined the term triple bottom line back uh, 30 years ago, and then he had a recall of it. I think it was last year he decided that it, it had served its purpose or beyond that served its purpose. Um, and and so this is a continuation of a dialogue that we've been going through a while. And one part of that, I'm sure, in September, uh, we're going to be uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's article in the New York Times, where he infamously said that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits, and that uh, Friedman doctrine has, uh, you know, which became the mantra for business and government for. 50 years is is being looked at, and I think will be looked at particularly in this moment. Yeah, so this particular piece builds on the theme that I've been hearing out of our community since the COVID-19 crisis really began, which is that the S, the social part of ESG, is really rising to the forefront. Not to say that it's going to supersede the other things, but that it's finally gaining its, its rightful... Um, consideration within within that realm of, of possibilities and that I think we're going to see a lot more companies intentionally figure out how they can measure it, right? Because that's always been sort of the the, the bugaboo of, of adopting a policy like that. What, how, what are the metrics you put around this? 
Is it that you've added so many people in your supply chain that are diverse, it, employees, how you pay people? What, there's so many different um, ways of looking at this. And it actually all points back to kind of the, the thing that you, you mentioned at the beginning with the human sustainability, right? Um, the, the intersection of business sustainability and human sustainability and the human at the center of, of the plan is um, just becoming much more obvious. Yeah, and, and the whole integration with the social issues, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, later on in this episode with uh, John Davies, uh, who runs the Green Biz Executive Network, about some conversations he's been having with companies. Uh, but also this week, I uh, uh, moderated a session at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development North American meeting uh, on this topic. Um, and uh, I had... Uh, Someone from 3M, someone from Nutrien, an agricultural company, and uh, Liberty Mutual, the insurance company, talking about, among other things, how do we integrate the S with the E and the G? You know, we talk about the environmental, social, and governance issues, but they've been kind of separate issues. And we're now at a point where where uh, social justice meets climate justice and environmental justice and economic justice. And they're all sort of rolling up and, and they're all you know, part and parcel or becoming recognized as part and parcel of some of the same problem sets. And so uh, it, it's interesting. And I don't think companies are very far along in this. Uh, and, but, but this is, I think, the kind of thing that Alan White is speaking to in, in his piece this week is how do we think more holistically, systemically, and in an integrated fashion about these issues and address all of them together. Here in the United States, the coronavirus pandemic rages on and on, but in some parts of the world, they're starting to return to normal. And there are questions about what normal should look like. There are lots of expert opinions on that, but what about everyday citizens? What do they think? Recently, the UK-based consultancy, A Bird's Eye View, posed that question to people across seven countries to understand their hopes and expectations for the future, how responsibility for change should be shared, and what a new role for businesses could look like. And here to talk about that research is the founder and managing director of A Bird's Eye View, Helena Waith. Hey, Helena. Hi, Joel. How are you? Doing great. So what did you set out to find out here? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we did the research for three reasons. The first one that you mentioned, to understand what everyday people think. Um, the second thing that we wanted to understand um, was around this idea of the new normal. There are a lot of things that were being um, mentioned in terms of theories of change and what the um, project projected impact might be. Um, but we actually didn't know whether that was what people thought or whether it was just coming from politicians and thought leaders. So we really wanted to get a sense check on that. And then the third thing that we did um, as part of this research is we wanted to understand the cultural differences and the nuances around what people think, why, why issues are important to them and why they want the recovery that they want. And so we designed the, the survey around that. So it was an online survey. We um, had over a thousand responses from people in France, Chile, uh, Peru, Italy, the UK, Indonesia, and Nigeria. So we had a we deliberately set out to connect with people in a cross section of countries, developed developing countries, 
um, with very prominent um, uh, religious importance and, and in other cases not different sizes of populations and obviously countries like Nigeria and Indonesia you know very populous and so we wanted to understand uh, what they thought what mattered um, and what we could do with this information to help um, share people's views and help inform discussion and, and decision making. Yeah, it's one of the things that struck me about this is that uh, the overwhelming consensus, nine and 10 people that you surveyed across all seven of those countries want to use this opportunity to take on social and environmental issues as, as well as obviously the public health issues. Uh, talk a little bit about what you see going on there. Yeah, it's it was really encouraging. So we we set out to understand the similarities and differences, but we actually didn't know how people would react. And so we were really, really encouraged exactly by what you just said. There was such an overwhelming, consistent point of view across all the countries um, in terms of age, in terms of gender, on um, the fact that they don't just want a recovery that focuses on economic issues, despite the hardships and the concerns that they're experiencing now and they anticipate in the future. They really see this as an opportunity for change and that it needs to address all three, the social, environmental and the economic issues and what the recovery will be. So people were very united on that. They're also very aligned around what we call the principles for change. So we asked them, you know, what would be the, the fundamental principles that you think would be most important to shape the recovery and, and the, the shape of the future. Um, and they spoke to four things. One was around technology um, and recognizing the importance of technology and the influence that has. The second was around the need for greater environmental protection um, and that this be a, a, a greater priority for, for government, for business. The third was around governance and the role of government, that it take a much more um, deliberate and pronounced role, in, particularly in the case of uh, people's livelihoods and also in healthcare. And the last was around society itself, that people really um, felt it was important to have um, less individualistic um, um, uh, behavior and thinking and that actually people should be more um, collective and there be a solidarity in, in how people tackle the future. Well, what about personal responsibility? How much of that uh, do, do people believe they should be taking or is this really a role for government in terms of not, you know, not again, not just the, the pandemic, but as we come out of that, the social and environmental challenges that we're facing, uh, what role do people feel they have for themselves? Yeah, they see, uh, they see they have uh, a clear role. They have an important role. So um, that was also really encouraging that it wasn't just sort of we expect you, government, business, financial institutions, et cetera, to, to lead this recovery. And, and this is a sort of one-way um, transaction or set of expectations and demands. Actually, they see themselves as central to that. Um, in two ways. One is um, in this sense of community, and they actually see that um, they have a clear view that national government should lead the recovery, regardless of how satisfied, dissatisfied they are with their, their national governments at the moment. Um, they see that regional and local government is also very, very important, and they see community as in on pretty much equal par. In the case of Chile, um, uh, Chileans think that the community is actually the, the most important player um, in leading the recovery. So you have this, um, in, in terms of their sense of responsibility, you have it in, in this idea around community, but you also have it at an individual level. And so people recognize 
um, the need to um, appreciate and put greater um, value on relationships. So whether that be um, with friends and family, with work colleagues, etc., they recognize the need to place greater priority um, themselves on the environment. They recognize the need to sort of reevaluate what they consume, you know, what and how they consume, consume and, and, and how they spend. Um, and so, and also very much around their health. So I think the crisis has really accentuated for a lot of people just how important their health is, um, you know, both their physical and their emotional health um, and the need to st- take steps to really improve that. Well, last and not least is what's the role of business in all this and what's the opportunity for companies that you see coming out of this? Yeah, there's a really important role for business. Um, Firstly, what was interesting is that, as I mentioned before, people associate the most important stakeholders with the recovery as government, national, um, regional and local and community. Business is sort of in a second tier, if you like. And it's not, not to say that they don't think business is important, but particularly around fundamental issues of infrastructure development. Um, so whether it be healthcare in countries where there isn't sufficient um, infrastructure and capability, or whether that be more in terms of transformational sectors and energy and low carbon economy in countries like um, France, the UK and Italy, they they see that there's um, there's a clear role for, for government to play. But in terms of business, they have a really clear pers- um, perspective. There was a, a a very strong point of view, which is business must improve its social and environmental impact. And what does that look like? It looks like um, fairer wages and work conditions. It looks like um, uh, being able to reduce their pollution and being able to um, reduce or, or protect scarce natural resources, which are so essential to the environment, but also actually in many cases they rely on for their own products and service delivery. Um, In the case of developing countries, both business and government, there's a real need for um, a more protective social safety net um, for for workers because these economies have such a large um, informal workforce. And so in terms of business and what business needs to do, there are a number of different things that that they need to do. One of the other things that we found is that um, people associate business as um, looking after their own interests and also being part of the system that has created more injustice and, and social inequality. And, and yet there's a real tension. So on one hand, this is their, their view around business. On the other hand, they actually see that business is, is crucial to being able to restart the um, economy and to be able to generate a greater dis- uh, distribution of wealth to society. And that is also a very clear expectation that they have. Um, In cases like Peru, um, there's a real expectation that uh, businesses adapt their business model, their product, service and offering. So it really varies by country, but it is very much in around um, the social aspects in terms of fair and more equitable contribution and engagement with employees and with society. And on the environmental level, um, it's very much around not only pollution and impact that they have as an organization, but how they work with government to shape policy um, and how they work with community to actually help implement that policy so that they have a stronger interface or a bridge, we call it, um, role between uh, government and community. Wow. Interesting stuff. And you can learn more and link to the findings by reading Helena's piece on greenbiz.com. Helena Waith is founder and managing director of the UK-based consultancy, A Bird's Eye View. Thanks so much, Helena. Thanks a lot, Joel, for having me. 
The coronavirus continues largely unimpeded around the world, but amidst that, so does the business of sustainable business. Against great odds, companies keep moving forward with initiatives both old and new. I've been writing about that a lot lately, most recently in this week's Green Buzz newsletter. But my colleague, Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies, has actually been talking about it with companies. John runs the Green Biz Executive Network, the membership group of sustainability executives from big companies that we run. And in a recent weekly online meeting, he asked members, what the heck is going on? So John joins me now. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. So what the heck is going on? Well, you know, a a couple of things. We've done a couple of these. So I guess just to step back a little bit, you know, the the executive network has always been based on people getting together in small groups and having really great discussion. And that kind of all went out the window in March. So we had to figure out what else can we do? And we came up, you know, after talking to several members, we came up with this idea of the the G-Ben happy hour that we've been doing every Wednesday at noon. Um, But, you know, we started doing this and we started bringing in some external speakers, but every few weeks we just have the group itself get together. And so back in May 13th, we did one of the, the, was the first time we did the what the heck is going on sort of ping around. And then we did it again in early July and, uh, you know, different conversations each of those times. Well, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, both in May and in July, the response from members is that they are busier than ever. And so what they're working on has shifted a bit, but not the amount of work that they have to do. Uh, So I think that's been really, really interesting. So what's the difference in the kind of work that they actually do? Well, uh, there's a lot of different things, as you can guess, when you have a a membership of 90 companies in all different industries. But uh, several members are talking about getting more time with their board of directors, a lot more focus, the questions being asked around ESG. And so they're working on more governance and strategy initiatives, whereas They may have planned at the beginning of the year to, say, do supply chain audits. That's not happening. So they're really doubling down on strategy and and ESG. Okay. What else? Uh, Well, you know, I think the interesting thing was in May when we got together to talk about this, a lot of it was COVID-related. And so there's an there's conversation around an opportunity to link sustainability with human health, right? Maybe step back from the climate change scary discussion and say, hey, sustainability is all about how we can make humans healthier. And so I think that was was a really interesting thing. Obviously, when it gets to early July, the conversation shifted a lot to diversity and inclusion and racial inequity. And so we saw a number of members talk about how they were having more discussions with their employee resource groups, that their CEOs were holding listening events. And while they had diversity and inclusion initiatives in the company, they really got accelerated. And is this a new remit for sustainability executives who may not have previously had diversity and inclusion in their portfolio? It's not necessarily in their portfolio at a lot of companies because 
They tend to have an executive responsible for diversity and inclusion, but I think it's more of just a corporate trend. And I think the, the interesting parts of the conversation is connecting those two things of human health that everyone's feeling from COVID and then, you know, sort of the environmental discrimination that we see with black and brown people that companies are starting to look at, okay, how can we work on that intersection? You wrote a number of months ago a line that I loved and have borrowed. It was that sustainability these days is being brought to you by the letter S. S, of course, is the social part of environmental, social, and governance issues, or ESG. Are you seeing an expansion of the sustainability role to include more social issues? Most definitely. And I think what people are struggling with right now is just um, how can we measure that, right? So, I mean, it's interesting with the E in ESG, right? 10, 15 years ago, people were really struggling with, okay, how are we going to measure emissions? What's this uh, whole idea of scope one, scope two, scope three? But we figured it out. And investors now have a pretty clear set of metrics when it comes to environmental sustainability. I think we're at a similar point now when it comes to social, and that's definitely getting folded into the sustainability department to figure out what are the metrics, what are the things we should be uh, focusing on. I mean, we saw it a few years ago with um, philanthropic or foundation activity getting aligned with a company's strategy and mission instead of just being donations. I think we're going to see a lot more metrics around social impact from uh, large corporations. One of the things I heard some of the executive network members say, I think it was at one of the May meetings, was that a lot of employees in their companies who used to be traveling a lot now have more time at their home and they're using some of that time to lean into sustainability issues. And they're asking these sustainability executives about what resources do you have and how can I learn about climate or circular economy or any number of other issues? And some of our members were ready for that and others not so much. Are you seeing any sort of next chapter in that story? Yeah. In fact, uh, the last call we had, one of our members talked about the fact that that they're engaged in more sales opportunities now than they ever were before. And because the salespeople are looking at this was in a technology company and, you know, normally you're evaluated on feeds and speeds and, you know, my thing can go 1% faster than that thing. And um, now they're saying, oh, we have an advantage because of our environmental commitments, because of what we've done. And so I think that's been interesting. Also in R&D groups are looking, they've got extra time. They're not all in the labs. And so they're wondering, okay, how do I incorporate sustainability into new product development or revisions to products? And even with boards are asking for education. I mean, we saw this at our Green Biz event in February with the Greenfin Summit, where investors are starting to ask more questions. And now, you know, the, the boards of directors are looking at that and saying, okay, educate me on what this ESG thing is. I need to be uh, smarter about it. Before I let you go, how much of this stuff will actually stick around post-coronavirus as people go back to traveling and back to, you know, more 
business as usual, or at least the new normal. Is this going to go away? Will people revert to their corners? Or do you see a longer term change happening to the sustainability profession? Well, you know, future is always hard to predict. But one thing that we've seen that, you know, you and I have discussed in the past is during the last downturn in 08, 09, we saw people getting let go of departments. We saw departments uh, taken away. We haven't seen that in this uh, in this crisis. I mean, this economic health and racial crisis. And if anything, I think companies will be doubling down. They definitely haven't backed off of their commitments. Um, you know, there there's some funny stories that come out of our, our work, right? There was there was one member who talked about uh, you know getting a request to have single use plastic utensils wrapped in plastic. <laughs> you know, I think she just responded, "Bring your own utensils." But you know, I think there's a concern around some of those things around single use and that will people shift to that. But I I don't think that's you know that's just a small thing. I don't think that's going to happen. But on the on the big items, uh, there'll be short term capex reductions and things like that. But I don't think that affects the long term aspects of sustainability. And I I think with boards more involved, investors more involved. I think uh, this is going to have legs, and I think the remit gets broader. So sustainability becomes sustainable within companies. Fascinating stuff. John Davies is vice president and senior analyst at GreenBiz Group and runs the GreenBiz Executive Network. Looking forward to the next report out of what the heck is going on, part three. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Joel. Last month, climate tech startup incubator Greentown Labs announced plans to open a second location in Houston, Texas in spring 2021. The facility will initially include 30,000 square feet of prototype lab as well as office space for approximately 50 entrepreneurs. Now, Greentown Labs' original location is in Somerville, Massachusetts, and it can accommodate approximately 100 startups across 100,000 square feet. Joining me to chat about the new development is Greentown Labs CEO, Emily Reichert. Emily, hello. Welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me today. It's great to have you. So why Houston? What perspectives and talents will you find there that aren't in the Boston area? I guess I'd start by talking about Greentown Labs' mission. And we have really a dual mission to support entrepreneurs who are solving the world's biggest environmental and mostly climate-related uh, challenges, and to really address climate change itself. And I'd say both of those missions are really aligned in, in why we're heading to Houston next. Uh, first and foremost, Houston is the energy capital of the world. It's home to the world-leading energy companies. Uh, they are located there, the talent and the assets and Kind of all of the infrastructure around the energy industry you can pretty much find there. It's engineering strength, um, you know, those people are really located in Houston. I think that as we think about where we're heading going forward, we need to think about that talent, that engineering strength uh, being redeployed towards a decarbonized future. And I think that that is something we can help with. 
And I think finally, you know, it's a good thing to Houston doesn't toot its own horn too often, but it's already uh, quite a renewable energy capital. And so there are a lot of renewable energy young companies there that entrepreneurs can learn from. There's also a very ambitious climate goal. This was announced with the Climate Action Plan uh, just earlier this year, net zero 2050, same as Boston. And as well, uh, you know, I think what we're hoping to do there is think about how to convene a community that doesn't really have right now a convening organization and really marshal the forces together who are interested in driving forward this energy transition developing climate tech, and then getting that climate tech to scale. Those are the people that we're going to bring together at Greentown Labs. And so that's really what we're hoping to do there. So again, supporting more entrepreneurs and as well addressing climate change. We think we can meet both objectives by expanding to Houston, Texas. So given the lessons that every company has learned about work styles and workplaces during the COVID-19 crisis, Will you be configuring this facility differently than the original site? Will there be different sorts of resources there? Well, I have to tell you, Heather, it's been an interesting couple of months um, running an incubator up here in the Boston area, 100,000 square feet, usually packed to the gills with 100 companies, uh, barely a conference room to be had. Uh, Over the last couple of months, though, we've figured out how to be a virtual incubator. Uh, We have people working in the labs now, probably 100 to 150 a day, but for the most part, the office space is really empty. And that is because of work from home uh, requirements that our state and of course that we are following to make sure that we keep people safe. And so what we've done in this time is figured out how do we offer the same things that our entrepreneurs need community, access to training, access to experts, um, you know, things like office hours and lunch and learns, and then as well, things that they don't need normally, but they do need in this time. So stories of resilience from founders, uh, corporate voices who have been there and done that. And then we also set up an investor speaker series, all of these things, virtual programming that I think are going to not only continue once we are on the backside of hopefully uh, having a vaccine, but they will continue to be strengthened as we have more and more um, occupation of our buildings. And so I think going forward, we're gonna be a partial virtual, partial in-person incubator and have more services and offerings for our startups that are in, in both forms. And just as we look at from a building perspective, uh, for the Houston incubator, we're already planning that probably for the next 18 months to two years, and this will be true in Boston as well, we're not fully occupied. You know, time was when we were trying to shove as many bodies as possible in a a few square feet, uh, because that's what folks wanted, those collisions, right? That magic. Now we have to figure out how to make those collisions happen. you know, sometimes over the internet. Uh, and, you know, we've been experimenting for several months to make sure that we can do that. And we found some interesting software that can help make it happen. So in Boston and Houston, in both cases, we're planning for lower in-person occupancy, but certainly um, similar services and supports for entrepreneurs. And then when we look at Boston, you know, finally, 
you think about, okay, we have an event space that supports 750 people. Well, probably not going to be using that for the end, till the end of the year at least. And so could that now become desk space so that people feel safer and more spread out? So I think we'll get creative. We'll figure it out. And it definitely is going to be a new reality going forward, though. So you already mentioned what, you know, some of the things that Houston has that other places don't. So do you expect the entrepreneurial mix for the new location to be different, like different sorts of climate solutions uh, from, from that community? Yeah, definitely. I think we'll see different solutions. We'll see some similar things. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of renewable energy businesses in Houston, um, 130 to be exact. And so I think that you'll have such expertise there that you will be uh, inspiring entrepreneurs to get engaged in that sector. Um, As well, I think Houston opens a lot of opportunities for what the future of cities look like. It is the fourth largest city in the country. And it's one of those big spread out sprawling cities without a lot of public transportation options. Although there is public transportation there and there is like something like 350 miles of bike trails. No one knows that who doesn't live in the city, but we have to figure out from a go forward perspective on climate, how we are going to have these cities be emitting less carbon into the atmosphere. And people aren't going to be moving away from places like LA or Phoenix or Houston, Texas, or any of the other kind of Southern newer uh, type capitals. So I think it's a great laboratory for how do you move these cities forward to address climate. Then I think another big area that is going to be important um, in the Houston market is what we're kind of calling as the buzzword carbon tech these days. So the IPCC tells us that we need to not only reduce the emissions going into the atmosphere of carbon dioxide, but we also need to take some of that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so that removal of carbon, figuring out what to do with that carbon, it's going to have to happen on such a scale that we're really going to need the resources of the existing energy, world-class energy organizations that are based in Houston to help us move forward on that. Um, It's just a scale that there's probably no other set of talent and and assets and engineering strength that are gonna be able to address that um, really and truly. What support and resources are you seeking from corporate partners? And And will you work with any local universities or colleges? So corporate partners are really, I'd say part of the founding principle of how Greentown thinks about getting technology to market. Uh, From pretty much the get-go, we've had corporate partners really supporting Greentown Labs from a a direct support perspective, so providing funding that then makes it more, excuse me, less expensive for entrepreneurs to be able to have space and be members at Greentown Labs. But as well, these uh, corporate partners, in addition to supporting Greentown, also play a really important role in helping startups get their technology to scale. I mean, you can imagine that if you are creating something that needs to be um, at the scale that it would be having an impact on global emissions, you're probably going to need a partner to do that. It's not going to be a 30-person company, or sometimes we start with two-person companies that are 
able to have that kind of impact. So partners can really help you skip forward and they can be mentors or experts um, for your team. They can help with pilot sites and demonstrations. They can do joint development agreements. They can do investments. They can be customers. So all of those roles are really important uh, roles for corporate partners to be playing and some that we've seen in many, many uh, examples over the years. I think that um, as we look to expand, though, we looked first to, in the Houston area, particularly our existing partners to help us out. And we were lucky to have both Chevron and Shell, who have been partners of Greentown Labs since 2013, really uh, get behind this expansion. And then we had other new partners like NRG join in. Uh, We have a couple more that we're revealing soon. But all of these folks, I think, are interested in not only supporting startups and having access to startups and startup technology, which is a common interest of of, um, the corporates we work with, but also they are very interested in the energy transition in general and really understanding what the trends are going to be there, what's the new technology that's going to be developed because they want to be part of it. They know they need to be part of it. And so we're happy to have them engaged in that and helping startups to scale their technology along the way. And universities? Yes, universities. So really, really important to the innovation ecosystem. Clearly, um, sources of talent and ideas. Uh, Really, the main recruiting grounds we've seen over the years for startups, oftentimes they start at the university, go through some kind of business plan competition, which might be, um, in the case of Houston, the Rice Business Plan Competition, the largest in the world. Um, In our area, it's the MIT Clean Energy Prize often head to an accelerator and then an incubator next. And so that's often where the startups come from. In the Houston area, uh, we've already begun conversations with Rice and the Rice Alliance, uh, University of Houston. And then we hope to work with as well, Texas A&M and UT Austin. Uh, We have some longstanding relationship actually with the UT Austin Cleantech Incubator as we're both part of a network called Incubate Energy, which is a national network of incubators, accelerator programs, and other support organizations that help climate tech entrepreneurs get their technology to market. So one final question for you. There have been some pretty dramatic revelations in the past month about the lack of systemic support for racially diverse founders within the VC community. How does Greentown Labs expect to play a role in addressing this both at the new site and in Somerville, Massachusetts? Another good question, and one that I I have to say that folks in my industry, in the clean tech, climate tech, um, energy industry, are all really chewing on and trying to figure out, uh, you know, you just have to flat out say it, clean tech industry is not diverse. It's just not. And why have we been okay with that? I think we (laughs) are all just really trying to fight the battle in front of us, but Now we're realizing that we need to be fighting multiple battles at one time. And so I think that for me, what's important is to think about what can we do that's concrete and that can have an impact right now. And so um, we, like many organizations, uh, marked uh, via a newsletter the death of George Floyd and condemned uh, racial injustice. But along the way, we also committed to several things that were very specific, which we knew we could follow up on. Not to say that's the end of what we're going to do, 
but it's really the beginning. And first and foremost, we know that we can help our companies, both Greentown as a company, as well as the startups we support, build more inclusive teams. So that's training that we will be incorporating in our overall programming. Second, uh, we're going to be engaging through our investor program with investors that are specifically focused on minorities, women, and other underserved groups. And that's something we can do. We can help promote them and get the word out there that this funding is available. We had several um, really community-wide forums. And I think one thing that came out of that was now a need to really just continue the conversation. And so we have a a DEI working group that's going forward. They're going to come up with a specific plan, and that will be uh, team, board, as well as the Greentown community involved in that. And then finally, uh, we've offered our staff the opportunity to go and take two days to work on the November election. If they want to work out of state, if they want to uh, get out the vote, we think that that is really where change needs to happen. It's well, it's not the only place, but it's one of the places where change needs to happen is at the ballot box. So um, we believe that that is one thing that we can do as an organization to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to be part of the process. And then finally, I'll just say from the Houston perspective, Houston is actually one of the most diverse cities in the country. And I think actually offers pretty unique opportunities to engage and really learn from entrepreneurs that are less represented in the clean tech industry generally. And so I think that you'll actually probably see us spinning up programs both across the Boston and the Houston ecosystems. And uh, yeah, that's all I can say at the moment, but we do want to actually have an impact and do things that are real and meaningful. And so we're taking it slow. We're thinking about it. And uh, please stay tuned for for more action on that front from Greentown Labs. Well, thank you, Emily, for checking in with us. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Heather. Thank you. You just heard from Emily Reichert with Greentown Labs. We're going to end this episode with a collection of thoughts from our latest 30 Under 30 class. This week, we feature the voices of Kiara O'Brien with Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends, Hannah Kajimura from Allbirds, and Matteo Dugon with HP Enterprise. Enjoy! O'Brien, and I'm the founder and president of Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends. We, we, I've typically found that, like, at first glance, I can send someone the policy. They could say, like, I'm vaguely interested in what you're doing. I can send them the policy, and they'll be like, oh, I'll look at it. But it's a pretty dense. I mean, what we're selling is dense. <laughs> we're under no illusions that a lot of people do not want to read. <laughs> what price should the price per ton be set at? And what's the escalation rate? Like, a lot of people are just like, please... Don't, don't tell me that kind of thing. Um, but then once you get to like sit down and have a conversation with somebody about why this policy matters um, and what it could achieve both politically and as far as true environmental results, that's when we typically find people are more open, especially on the right, um, to what we're doing. Um, it's really just like 
doing the legwork of walking them through the policy step by step and tying it to real values oriented um, things. Like why, why does this matter for you, for your state, for your family, for our future? Hi, I'm Hana Kajimura and I lead sustainability at Altbirds. If we can create a competitive race to the lowest carbon shoe and maybe Allbirds wins, maybe we don't, like that's a victory in our mind. How do we harness the competitive nature of business to solve a different kind of problem um, as well as continue to challenge ourselves to make sustainability a collaborative space because I think historically when it's been a corporate sustainability team off to the side swap like comparing notes um, that kind of collaboration happened under the radar and was fine but as sustainability becomes more and more of a competitive edge at the highest levels of companies the temptation is to treat it as such and to hold your work close to the vest but we have to keep challenging that opinion. I think we also, an observation that I've made is that we're, as an industry, well, beyond the fashion industry, like in sustainability, we're all waiting for perfect. Like we're waiting for perfect data and peer-reviewed studies and uh, perfect plans before we put things out into the world and we don't have time to wait for perfect and we're never going to get there so we think that like in the context of our carbon footprinting labeling like a 90 percent right answer is much better than a no answer at all as long as we're clear and transparent about the methodology and the assumptions that we did make and the uncertainties that we do have and by just putting something out there and provoking a conversation, we can beat up the numbers and make them better over time, but we're certainly not gonna get there fast enough if if we're sitting on our hands waiting for perfect answers and perfect data. My name is uh, Matteo Dupont. I'm a technologist in IT efficiency and sustainability at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. What I would really try to, to, to focus on uh, if I had all those resources and stuff is definitely how can we help developing and undeveloped countries make that leap, kind of not having to go through all those steps that the developed world has already gone through. Right, because that's that's the main challenge right now to me, which is really we cannot stop development of those countries, and that's just one thing. But somehow we cannot afford to have those countries go through the same path that the developed countries have gone, because that's just too consuming from an environmental perspective. So how can we bring enough innovation and enough resources to those countries that are willing to have the same thing as we have, but without having to be an, a burden for the environment?
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organizations, stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every single week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And we welcome your comments, questions, tips. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in 